but I think what Adam was talking about is, is really important. Um, you know, we can talk about a, an, a, a mandate to be progressive or a mandate to be moderate. Um, I think his mandate is to just be a good guy uh, and to help us heal and, and try to end some of the division that we have. Hi there. Welcome to Podcast is a Seven-Letter Word. I'm Brendan Buck, a partner at Seven Letter, and we are delighted to be bringing you a special presidential transition episode of Podcast is a Seven-Letter Word. There's so much going on in Washington right now that we just had to pull together a few of our partners to talk about what it all means. I'm joined by four of my colleagues with long and impressive resumes in politics and public affairs, all of them partners here at Seven Letter. Trevor Francis. Hey, Brendan. Allison Fastow. Hey there. David DiMartino. Hey, everybody. And Adam Abrams, who I will note is an alumnus of the last Democratic White House. Hey, how are you guys? So let's dive in, guys. Um, this was obviously a historic election. It was also a bit of a mixed bag, though, in terms of results. Uh, we had a big, healthy win for Biden, but some trouble down ballot for Democrats. So what do we make of this? What is our top line takeaway? Well, Bernard, I think a lot of people were talking about the potential of a blue wave, and I think one could argue we did see that, but we also saw a strong Republican undertow at the same time. And there have been a lot of districts that, uh, much like we saw in 2016, where Hillary Clinton won 25 congressional districts, those same districts uh, also were uh, electing Republican members of Congress at the same time. So in one way, 2020 was a repeat of what we saw in 2016 with a lot of split ticket voting. Um, and frankly, uh, overperformance on down ballot races that really benefited Republicans, despite uh, Biden's very strong showing uh, in states that uh, had previously been won by President Trump. Yeah, I think it's a uh, it's an interesting point. Trevor. I think you're right that, you know, there was a lot of talk leading into the election that this was going to go only in one way, especially once we saw some of the polling. And I think um, one of the ways that it, that it really kind of created uncertainty, not just in the order in which ballots were counted on election night and the days that followed, but the results kind of didn't match what, uh, what a lot of people expected um, and that not everyone voted the same way. The ticket splitting was something that I think has people still scratching their heads. Well, um, I'd just add that, you know, I think for a lot of Democrats who are expecting a quote unquote repudiation of the president in this election, um, that extended to an expectation that there would be a repudi repudiation of Republicans who supported the president and his policies, or as some folks may say, enabled him. Um, and what became really clear is that even for folks who didn't feel comfortable with the president, that discomfort did not extend um, to, to the Republicans who may have supported uh, his policies or tactics. I think what we could take away from this, though, is uh, as Allison said, um, you know, this was a personality election. Uh, people came out to vote for or against Donald Trump or for or against Joe Biden. I mean, the narrative is that people didn't vote for Biden. They voted against Trump. I think that can be said on both sides of the aisle, certainly in some of the five states that Biden flipped. Um, but the the outcome basically was uh, uh, 
you know, a significant gain for uh, Biden. He's going to end up with over 80 million votes when all when they're all counted finally, which is an incredible number. And, you know, Trump also got an incredible number um, of votes, too, but it wasn't enough. And he turned up people in states that he was going to win, uh, which is why his numbers are up and why some of those down ballot races kind of were dragged over the finish line. So, yeah, disappointing for Democrats on the congressional level, um, but completely optimistic for Democrats on what the vote means and what the vote um, uh, portends for the future for, for Democrats. So I'm definitely one of those people who thinks that a lot of the vote for Biden was really a vote against Donald Trump. Look, I'm, I'm from the state of Georgia that flipped blue, and that was largely because of huge transition in the metro Atlanta suburbs going from Trump country to, uh, or at least going from Republican to voting for Biden. Um, and, and I just, my, know, my knowledge of that area and, and, and everything I've seen tells me that those people aren't necessarily Democrats now. Um, and I think that ended up costing Democrats down ballot is, is because, look, uh, the party, I think the Democratic Party got a little bit out over its skis, you know, was very confident it was going to win, started talking very openly about a big, broad, progressive agenda. And I just think a lot of the people who delivered states for Joe Biden were not necessarily ready to sign up for uh, a, a full progressive agenda. So, I mean, you know, given the, the, the down ballot struggles Democrats had and a pretty healthy margin for Joe Biden at the same time, let me ask you, David, what do you think Joe Biden's mandate actually is now, given that he may not even have control of, of, of the Senate? What is his mandate? That's a great question, Brendan. I think um, I think Biden does have a mandate. I mean, by all definitions of what a mandate is, uh, based on the last election and those who are declaring a mandate, uh, Biden has exceeded those expectations. He's matched Trump in the electoral vote count. He actually won the popular vote. Go figure uh, if that happens in an election sometimes. Um, the mandate is clear. He has four um, crises that he's identified and he ran on, uh, they ran on every day talking about um, uh, solving the coronavirus crisis, solving the economic, uh, uh, the Trump economic cratering, and solving the uh, racial justice problem in this country, and solving climate change. And it, it's 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 it wouldn't be it wouldn't be unfair to say that 78 to 80 million votes uh, for that particular agenda. Whether you know a percentage of them, I'll, I'll concede that maybe a percentage of them were people who just didn't like Donald Trump, but they did vote for Joe Biden and he comes into office with that kind of momentum behind him. And I think he does have a mandate to act. And it's interesting when you, when you mentioned the Senate, um, uh, I think it's, I think it's an interesting takeaway that, um, you know, while the Republicans maintain control and, and, and while we do still have two Senate races that are up for grabs, um, I, I don't feel super confident in about winning those in Georgia, but you know, I think the Senate, if you look at um, the next cycle and the senators who are up and the fact and the demographics that we saw that were trending in this election, I mean, um, Texas moved to the left, even though it didn't get all the way there. Georgia moved to the left. Arizona moved to the left. Florida moved to the right. But I think that's an aberration. Um, I'm not sure that that's going to be a continuous trend the way we saw it a couple weeks ago. But the, the, the point I'm trying to make here is the demographics are changing in significant parts of where Republicans are strong. And, um, you know, in the, in particularly with issues that are important to young people like climate change uh, and racial justice, 
they're kind of on the wrong side of history at this point. And I think time's going to be running out for them uh, in future elections. And, and no one will be surprised to hear that I think that Joe Biden has a mandate as well, considering my experiences in the Obama-Biden White House. But um, I, I do think he has a mandate and, and maybe as a like on a more existential mandate than on a policy mandate. Um, it was a mandate to lead and set the tone for the nation, especially on issues related to COVID and uncertainty and um, like David talked about um, economic and um, you know, racial injustices. And I think those are the, whether it's his agenda or his approach, I think um, voters were pretty clear that they wanted him in charge um, and his value structure uh, sort of setting the tone for the country. And I think um, it's not just his mandate, but it's his responsibility now to, to convince people um, and make the sale, um, you know, and show them who he really is. And they, they took a leap of faith um, based on the campaign, but I think um, it's also based on his history and his track record. So um, if he's the Joe Biden that, you know, Democrats have been, you know, cheering for, for, for decades now, I think people are going to um, see who he really is and, 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 you know, have a really great running start on um, a lot of the things that matter to a lot of people. The most immediate mandate, I think, in front of the president-elect is COVID, not to dismiss the other ones. I think that we have a very different country than we had two weeks ago. I think one of the things that you're seeing is the virus migrate into much more rural areas than what we saw this spring. It's a very, it's the same virus affecting different people in a much more profound way. And I think one of the reasons he did get elected was the steady message and sort of voice of calm despite this pandemic and not to separate the economic or the social justice or the climate change from them. But I think he's already making moves over the last week to sort of, you know, reinforce the seriousness of the pandemic as well as to credential his leadership to get us through it. And I, I think that that's the principal mandate coming out of the election. Yeah, I think I think it can be both. I, I certainly agree with you. I mean, that is the the topic number one. It's one affecting everybody's life. And he, to the extent that he ran on an agenda, you know, it was I'm I'm going to solve this. Uh, but I think what Adam was talking about is is really important. Um, you know, we can talk about a in a, a mandate to be progressive or a mandate to be moderate. Um, I, I think his mandate is to just be a good guy uh, and to help us heal and and try to end some of the division that we have. I don't know that anybody is capable of it, but if there is, it's, it's hit the type of person he is, someone who is very clearly genuine in wanting folks to get along and someone who is not as polarizing, you know, for um, whatever reason, the last few presidents we've had have been really polarizing. I don't know that Joe Biden is going to be that. Whether that's enough to, to fix what's broken with us, I don't know. But um, I feel like that, that more than anything, his, his character is what he ran on. Um, and hopefully that can be, that can be his mandate. Um, but we're talking about COVID. Um, obviously, there's a terrible spike going on. There's been this uh, debate seemingly going on forever in Congress that they're going to do something about, about COVID relief that to this point has gone nowhere. What do folks think prospects of doing anything in a lame duck? How much does Donald Trump care at this point? And if they don't get it done in lame duck, you know, how much easier is it actually going to be come 2021? 
Well, Brendan, I, I think one of the things, and you raised the question that's been sort of you know top of mind now for many, many months, you know, dating back to early summer when the Democrats were passing, you know, the Heroes Act. I, I personally think that the situation is is about to get worse before it gets better. And if you look at all of the provisions that Congress enacted in partnership with the administration this spring, that they're all expiring. It's everything from additional unemployment insurance to uh, you know, relief for renters, and the list goes on. This December is a real cliff in terms of economic assistance, and, and that's happening at the same time we're seeing a massive spike of the virus. So if, if those two convergent events doesn't get Congress to act this lean duck, I don't know what will. But again, the situation looks a lot worse today than it did even two months ago when the, when the pandemic was still front burn. So my, I, I totally agree, and I, and I think as the two Republicans on here will probably acknowledge that Republicans are probably the biggest obstacle um, at this point to getting it done. But I will push this back maybe to, to David. Did, did Pelosi screw up in sort of running out the clock on this? I, my opinion is, is very clear that she did not want a deal before the election. She didn't want to change the dynamic. It was going well for them. And she kind of toyed with Steve Mnuchin for as long as she could, thinking they could just get a deal later. Now it's not so clear there's going to be a deal at all. Did she make a mistake by not taking a deal when she could have a month ago? You know, the challenge for the speaker was she had already passed a huge bill. The Senate didn't work, didn't do anything with it for months. Um, while, you know, while Mnuchin was, you know, up on the hill negotiating, you had the entire Senate Republican caucus saying, no matter what you do, we're not going to pass it. So there really wasn't a lot of incentive for her to do much. Um, Trump walked off the field. You know, at first he said he didn't want a package. Then he did want a package. Then he was calling Mitch McConnell. Then he didn't call Mitch McConnell. Like nobody knew. If you're the, if you're the Speaker of the House who's, who's trying to find a, a, a path forward on a legislative agreement to save the country, um, she was dealing with a clown car full of Keystone cops in that negotiation. Um, so, I, you know, I don't fault her. It would have been nice to have a deal because I think it's going to be harder in the lame duck to do this. And, and, and then I'll make this last point and let someone else talk. But uh, this is where I think Mitch McConnell and the Republicans are miscalculating. We just talked about how the, the, the election was a referendum on character and, and it, it seemed to indicate the country wanted a change from the confrontations of the last four years. But the Republicans don't seem to have learned that lesson. They've dug in. They're going to pass. They're going to um, approved nominations for judges and unqualified nominees to the Federal Reserve while doing nothing to help people, um, you know, recover from this disaster. And I think that that's gonna, gonna wear thin, especially once, you know, Trump eventually, because we all know he's leaving, but especially once Trump is out of the picture, um, they're gonna look pretty silly having tried to, you know, A, extend this election beyond what's reasonable and B, um, you know, standing in the way of progress uh, on this really important issue. I think we all generally agree that there should be a, a COVID package. The, the funny thing here, you know, from a perch in Washington is it seemed like every industry wanted this to happen. And there was so much, so many resources put into doing this. What do folks think, you know, where that came up short? Why did it fail? Um, or is, has it failed? Is there still a chance for this to, to come together? Well, I, I think David's point about the position or positions, plural, that the president took 
during the back and forth and the negotiation is, is a really fair one. Um, it was hard to know, I think, for Republicans where the president was ever going to land. And if you don't know, then what are you negotiating against? Um, but I think the other important piece, and, and Trevor and Brendan, I'd be curious to hear you guys weigh in on this, is, you know, obviously lots of questions right now about the validity of, of polling and how to read and how to read polling information. But um, most of the data showed that Trump voters were significantly less concerned about coronavirus, both from a, a public health perspective and even an economic one um, than Democratic voters were. So if you're a Republican in the Senate, are you then just, you know, less motivated to do something about this, um, despite the campaigning by various industries? Well, I think, Allison, you raise a good point. And again, I think that the, the virus is different today and over the last week than it was even two or three weeks ago. And I think it's starting to affect regions of the country that, you know, again, if we think back to where we were in the spring, it was a West and East Coast large city urban density problem. And we've already seen in the last couple of days, governors of North Dakota and other Republican governors sort of mandating masks and getting much more engaged on this issue. So I don't think that that's itself a, an incentive for congressional action, but I, I, I certainly hope and expect that some Trump voters that had some skepticism of the virus are starting to realize that it's hitting incredibly close to home now. And, and hopefully that gives an, an added incentive for congressional Republicans to, to work with Democrats and pass something. Yeah, in a sort of ironic way, the success of the CARES Act ended up discouraging further activity, right? I mean, threw so much at this in the beginning because everybody was freaked out. There's, there was this, this crazy virus happening. Everything was shutting down. People were losing work and they, and they rightly just threw everything they could at it and it worked and it was a great success. Um, and that has sort of taken the pressure off from a lot of people, particularly in red states who think, okay, well, this isn't a big deal. You know, we were able to get through it and look, there's a vaccine coming. Why do we need to do everything? You know, for a long time, the sort of Republican answer to all of it was just open back up. Just open back up and the economy will be fine. Um, I think we are now getting to a point, as Trevor was saying, that we may no longer be in a situation where opening back up is a solution because things are going to start closing down again. And I feel like if there's a, a chance for this to come back together again, COVID relief package, it's because everybody starts freaking out again, because they start seeing everything shutting down again. Uh, and, and that same motivation that was there before comes back to life. I would also just say, Brendan, sort of respectfully disagreeing um, with something you said. Um, yes, absolutely. The steps that were taken in the CARES Act um, were significant. But to say, it, quote unquote, it worked um, or it fixed it, I, I think there are millions of Americans who are now unemployed or have lost their insurance would, would disagree with that. Small business owners who have had to close their businesses would disagree with that. Um, there are a lot of folks who already feel as though what was done was insignificant. So the question now isn't when we reach this cliff, as Trevor referred to it, it's not, oh gosh, are things going to get bad? It's how much worse are things going to get before there are additional steps taken? And is that incentive enough to change the calculus during a lame duck or do we have to wait for a new administration and, and, and just to add on to that all of this is happening at a time where we're asking for more sacrifice for the american public and and, and you know so again where are these converging events and how the policy sort of meets the the moment it's going to be very interesting to see 
So we've got a we've got a new president now, despite what <laughs> some people are running around saying. Um, so this is obviously an exciting period of time around DC, uh, particularly folks who who know a lot of folks who are being named for new jobs. Um, this week we're starting to see names of senior White House staff. Uh, Ron Klain, named chief of staff, uh, let open this up to the group. What, what, if, what do we make of the types of folks who've been named? Um, do we like these picks? What is it, more than anything though, what does it say about what kind of White House this is going to be? Speaking from my perch, um, I think there are some great choices in here. A lot of really smart people um, I think one of the things that um, the Joe Biden campaign, Joe Biden's uh, offices have known for, and Joe Biden's sort of characters we've discussed, have talked for, talked about um, competence, um, listening to diverse perspectives, and and also you know I think the other thing we're seeing is he wants people around him that he trusts. So what we're seeing are people who are smart and have established records, but also um, uh, a few that have uh, new perspectives, um, but all of whom are people that. Um, I think he would rely on and, and trust, or at least trust the people who, who recommend them into his camp. So um, I think it's, it's an exciting group of, of people, and we're only at, what, four, five, six names already, so um, more to come, but I think it's a, a, a strong start. I think there's a parallel here, Brennan and Adam, between sort of what we've seen so far with the Biden, and not at the exclusion of previous transitions, but having been on the 2000 campaign at Bush, it was bringing in folks that were very knowledgeable about Washington who were personally close to the president or had worked for his father's administration. And, and right now we're seeing a number of known steady hands occupy really important jobs that are not only close to him, but that know this town. And, and I think if there ever was a, a time where you needed sort of seasoned Washington knowledge, it's now. And I think so far, you know, the president-elect is delivering on some of his staff choices. And I think one could assume he will do so with his cabinet selection as well. How does he balance, you know, the, it feels like it's a very old school, old Washington team so far. I know they're just starting to fill it out, but we know there's going to be pressure to appease the progressives and make sure there's a, a balanced perspective at the table. Um, you know, do we, do we feel like he's going to make people happy there or is he, is this going to be a purely sort of centrist team? I, look, I think what Biden's going to do is put the most competent people available into these positions, which is going to be a refreshing change, um, from the last four years. And I think, you know, the, the signal that Ron Klain sends is definitely old school Washington. He's been a chief of staff in the White House before, uh, for, for Biden and for Gore. Um, but um, I think he's going to have a steady hand and we'll, and, and we'll see a lot less chaos coming out of the West Wing, which will be, um, which will be nice and it'll make people feel like things are, um, things are under control. In the context of like rounding out the cabinet, I think he's made some really strong commitments that we need to acknowledge. He's, he's promised to have, you know, the leadership of his administration be more than half people of color. And, you know, we're going to, by definition, be bringing in new people um, to these leadership positions that are going to bring a whole new perspective. They may or may not appease the the far left of the left uh, out there, but you know, their you know their uh, their agenda of you know plucking Democratic senators out of the Senate to put them in the cabinet doesn't necessarily work politically for us at the moment. Um, that could change after the after the midterms, but that's kind of where we are. Do you think he's sort of glad that there's such a narrow Senate that would make it harder for him to take an Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders? Is that a, is that a good excuse not to uh, bring those folks in? I think he's very comfortable in um, 
a room of willing collaborators, um, which is why he was always the sort of closer in 2011. And Brendan, when you were in the house working for Speaker Boehner, and um, they sent Biden in at the very last second of the Obama budget deals to try and bring people together. So I think he's comfortable in a, in a place where um, he has to try and bring uh, people to that compromise position. But I, I think, like David said, I, I think he would have loved to be able to bring as robust a progressive um, base into the, into the White House and the administration as he could. Um, and if this limits him, then he'll have to do it with his own leadership, which I think he's capable of doing. He's done it before. I'd be very interested to hear from my Democratic colleagues what we make of sort of the Democratic caucus in the House sort of fighting itself one right now, uh, from the AOC sort of wing down to the Abigail Spanberger and the Connor Lambs. Yeah, I, I would call it the National Thanksgiving Day dinner conversation. Just playing out through, through, through staff leaks in the House of Representatives. It's amazing. Um, but look, this is the, the age-old struggle between the, you know, the Democratic Party is a true coalition of uh, smaller tents of progressives and moderates and, and um, liberals and whatever you want to call us. Well, let me just say, somebody who worked for John Boehner, you guys don't have a monopoly on infighting. Um, that was my <laughs> well, entire existence uh, on the Hill. Um, but let's look ahead to next year, uh, 2021. Joe Biden runs on this big progressive agenda and then uh, doesn't take the Senate with him, most likely. Um, what happens now? Like, you know, I, we talked a lot about COVID. Are there, and, you know, Adam brought up this point and then I was there. Joe Biden has a lot of experience getting in the room, working with Mitch McConnell to close out deals and avert disaster. I think that's very different than coming together affirmatively, proactively, preemptively on something you just want to do, not something you have to do. You know, their entire experience was like, let's prevent catastrophe. Um, do they have any incentive to come together on things they just want to do or you don't, don't have to do? Um, and more importantly, are there things where they actually align and want, and you know, are there issues in which they both want to get things done? Um, is there an agenda to be had next year, I, I guess? In, in my view, some of this is up to, to Joe Biden to make the case, but, but some of it is also up to the Senate Republicans to, uh, assuming that they, you know, um, prevail in at least one of the Georgia seats, which they may, um, to, to sort of show that they're willing to lead and pass policy measures. I mean, that... Um, you know, that as we've been talking, I saw a tweet that Trump is going to consider seriously running in 2024. So, you know, if he doesn't really leave the building and all of the Senate Republicans who are running or hoping to run in 2024 are either, um, you know, trying to prove their Trumpiness to his base or to him, um, you know, that's a real problem, um, you know, for those who want to get things done. Um, you know, and I think that's, you know, that's a, a responsibility that falls at the lap of the Republicans as much as it does um, Joe Biden's White House. Look, I, I think that Adam's point is, is well taken, that there will be some pressure on Republicans to, you know, pass an agenda. I don't know that we've ever seen that pressure move Mitch McConnell a whole lot. Um, it, it's never really seemed to, to get to him. I think the one thing that could 
politically motivate folks is 2022 is shaping up to be a heck of a midterm. Um, we're going to have redistricting in the House, uh, obviously a razor-thin majority for Pelosi already, so the House is definitely going to be in play. And then a Senate map that is not very favorable to Republicans. And so you got to think that at some point over the next two years, there's going to be a few of those senators who uh, are in battlegrounds who are going to be telling McConnell, we need to get some things done. Uh, you know, your mind automatically goes to infrastructure, um, despite the fact that we've, you know, joked about infrastructure in Washington for years now. Um, it feels like, you know, a, a Joe Biden and, and this type of Senate Republicans could actually uh, get something done there. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful, but um, I, you gotta, you gotta look for things that are going to change the political dynamics because we all know um, this is a very politics driven uh, institution these days. Uh, and I think maybe a, a, a 2022 political map could just be that. I agree with Brandon. And I think that to the question on the table, where does this sort of start? I think the, the earliest days of the administration and the Congress are really going to set the tone for the next two years. The question is, is, you know, besides COVID, what sort of opportunities are there to try to bring the parties together on meaningful legislation? I mean, again, you know, the Bush administration coming out of a really, really divisive Florida recount started with no child left behind and other issues. We saw that in other, you know, we know that you know when Brennan was on the Hill and those you know Adam you were in the Obama administration healthcare was really the first issue in 2009 which was not a kumbaya issue it allowed both parties to sort of retrench so I think it really depends on where the president elect sort of starts his agenda it will as Brennan said this is going to be a very volatile midterm election but the tone for the next year is going to be set in the first couple of days and weeks of of January and February and I guess we'll see what that looks like. So David, you're our resident climate expert. Um, if a if a big climate bill isn't isn't doable in the next two years, um, does he immediately or does he either way start doing things on the? How much are, are folks in, in the climate space expecting a lot of executive action to get this get the ball rolling on this issue? So, um, I think people are um, taking their cues from Biden himself. Um, they're, you know, Ron Klain's first interview on MSNBC after being named chief of staff, he very pointedly laid out a day one agenda that had very aggressive climate um, and environmental um, actions that the president, the new president will take uh, through executive order. Some of it has to do with rolling back some of the anti-climate policies of the Trump administration that are kind of low hanging fruit on the regulatory side. Some of it has to do with um, establishing uh, environmental justice um, as a priority across all the federal agencies. And he's even kicking around the idea of creating a National Security Council modeled uh, uh, organization uh, currently titled the National Climate Council um, that would serve as like an interagency task force to make sure that all of the um, authority of the executive branch is, is rowing in the same direction to address the climate crisis. But going back to the question beforehand, I think that's a secondary concern. I mean, there's going to be some day one executive order action, um, as I mentioned. But you know, really, the the first move here on the on the chessboard is going to be the COVID relief package, and you know, it's going to be really hard for the Republicans to stymie that. Um, they can talk about the deficits all they want after the last four years. I think they'll have very little credibility on it. But like obstructing um, economic um, relief to, as Allison said, to millions of Americans who are 
really suffering under the current um, situation will be a gross overreach by the Republicans. And then McConnell has to worry about, um, you know, without a Trump in the White House, you know, do some of the Senate Republican moderates to the extent that there are many left, um, do they feel emboldened to work across the aisle? Because, you know, Mitt Romney's a, um, not my favorite uh, U.S. Senator, but certainly one who's willing to um, try to put progress ahead of politics. Um, and there are, there are others like, like-minded with him that might want to just be tired of the the rancor and try to move forward on stuff. But I do think environmentalists are expecting great things from Biden on climate change. So before we wrap up, just, you know, we're, this is obviously going to be a new era in DC and every four years, everybody gets very excited about what's possible and, and maybe what's not possible. Um, but I think more than anything, it's going to be just a different environment that everybody's operating in. We're so used to all of the noise and, and the, 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 the craziness, the, the unpredictability, the, the predictable unpredictability about the entire thing. Um, I, what, do, we, do we feel confident to, that this is going to be a more productive environment to get things done? Um, you know, do we think people are going to be able to have their voice heard a little more in, in an administration like this? Um, I assume more people are going to, or less people will be advertising on Fox and Friends now um, than they used to. But what do we think this overall this means for, for DC and, and folks trying to get things done. So you, you, Brendan, you sort of went where my mind went, which is like, who's the new gatekeeper of information? And uh, with the president now re removed from office, but presumably continuing to tweet and weigh in on everything and trolling the president-elect and everybody who, who remains in Washington, um, where does the center of gravity remain for Republicans? Um, you're already seeing information about Newsmax and OAN and whatever, the, whatever Trump decides to do in a digital media perspective. Um, there's, a, there's a real potential that there's a diffusion of that information source um, that will be interesting to watch. Um, but it's, it's hard to take him out of the equation, even though he's no longer at the helm. I am one who thinks that we're going to have policy discussions again. And I think Allison makes a, a, a good point. I, I personally think that Trump is going to be less relevant than a lot of people fear. I, I think you've already started to see, I mean, you know, Brennan, you've made this point. I mean, this is the only political actor of our lifetime that's been able to dominate every news cycle and every conversation. And that his influence over that is going to wane regardless of what he says and on what platforms. I mean, the epicenter is going to be policy and normalcy again. And, you know, I do think that the issues are not going to be easy, but we are going to have, I think, hopefully, more thoughtful conversations about policy and not what is on somebody's hair trigger Twitter mind. So I, I think that's really interesting, Trevor, but, but I wonder, um, you know, there's a portion of the, the American electorate that doesn't want to hear about policy, right? The reason they were so fascinated by this president is because he didn't talk about policy. Um, so I think for us and for the folks who live inside what we have to acknowledge is a fairly significant bubble, we are craving for that return to a truly substantive policy-driven discussion and dialogue. But for those who don't exist within this bubble and who are just looking for, you know, the digestible um, 
uh, anecdote or, or quote to understand what's happening, um, what are those people hearing and considering a lot of them are the ones who are, are driving Republican politics, what are Republican lawmakers going to be listening to or for? It's a great question, and, and I wish we knew the answer, Allison. I, I do think, though, that the, right. I think what we've gone through over the last four years, I, I do believe that Trump's influence over Republican elected officials in Washington is going to continue to win. Well, there's obviously a lot of unknown. Um, if, if we do get back to just debating policy, I'm actually one of those that get excited about that. Um, but I think uh, we are definitely in an era of politics where it's not going to be boring no matter what. Uh, but that's uh, going to do it for us today. Thank you all for, for joining. Uh, this has been Podcast is a Seven Letter Word. Uh, we look forward to continuing this conversation. Um, next time, hope that we can talk about some exciting news and have some more insights for you. Thanks. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.